I'm Dr. Leif Tapanilla from the Idaho Museum of Natural History, and I'm here with Peter Pruitt from Zoo Idaho, and this is The Nature of Idaho. Coming to you from the 1B, Bannock County that is, we're talking all about Idaho, its wild places and wild faces, the natural setting that makes Idaho an incredible place to live and be proud of. Our guest today is Candace Fallon. She is a senior conservation biologist with the Xerces Society. We're talking about fireflies in the western states, Peter. Have you ever seen a firefly out west here? Not out west. You know, growing up in the Midwest, we saw them everywhere. Fireflies, lightning bugs, whatever oh, we yeah. want. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, by by the hundreds and hundreds Thousands that just come of them. up, right? Oh yeah. yeah, totally. Really cool sight. Yeah. I I even we've talked about this a little bit earlier, but you know, as an undergrad, I had an animal physiology class and in in lab we actually made synthetic Glow in the dark firefly goo with with synthetic. I'm going to repeat that word. Yeah, not synthetic. Real. Yeah, we weren't. So they took the chemicals or something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. Yep, and then yep. what did you do with that? No, we looked at it and turned the lights off. <laughs> you know, it was, you know, it's a junior level class, and it, it was a pain in the butt class. But that was probably that the was funnest lab I've ever clearly been. Clearly, the part that you remember. Yeah, turning the lights off. That glows. <laughs> Peter, do you have uh, some nature news for us? We totally do. Right you on. know, Leaf, when we look at the human genomic evolutionary history, we tend to think about genetic additions. Okay. Right? You know, mutations, we always, good mutations, we think something was added. But what about genes that have gone missing? Removed genes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So there's okay. some new research into primate genes has shown that for us humans, We've, we've lost approximately 10,000 bits of genetic information compared to our primate cousins. Okay. And most of these losses are only a few base pairs. So it's not like we're losing big, huge segments of genetic information, just little bits of them. And what they've noticed is these missing genes are common across all humans, all of us. Present-day humans are missing these. And because of this, they they do feel that they are important to the evolutionary process, suggesting that they provided some type of biological advantage. Interesting. Yeah. And so the best way to explain it is um, think of a genetic sequence that spells out the word don't. Okay. And this mutation removes the N and the T, and it goes from don't to do. And so they're thinking when you pull some of these pieces off, for instance, with brain development, this piece of code that they lost was stopping brain development at a certain point. And then they removed it, and our brain developed even further because we missed that turnoff signal. Interesting. Of course, humans defined by having a gigantically oversized brain. Yeah, right? totally. Yeah. You know, all our neck and Back problems are because of our big noggins. Uh, I see a solution. Yeah. We need to add more DNA. Yeah, to tell us to stop. <laughs> Shorten our brains. Right. <laughs> Sounds like a, a solution that creates other problems. Maybe. Right. Okay. Well, thanks for that. Um, today we're going to be talking about fireflies, and you will be fascinated and amazed by our trivia question today. How many species of firefly are in the United States? The answer is more than one. <laughs> you will be fascinated. I'm blown away. I just found out the answer to this, and it's way more than I thought. When we come back from the break, Candace Fallon joins us. We're going to talk all about fireflies, so you want to stick around. Stay tuned. 
Hi, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Here at NPR, we try to reach all kinds of listeners. My name is Leo, and I'm eight years old. And we take feedback very seriously. I never hear much about nature or dinosaurs or things like that. So when Leo wrote us about our appalling lack of dinosaur coverage on All Things Considered, we knew we had to talk to him. Hi, Leo. Hi. I hear from your parents that... You want to be a paleontologist when you grow up, and now we've got one on the line for you. Okay. <laughs> let me let you ask a question. How did dinosaurs grow to be so big? This is hard-hitting journalism, because these are the types of questions that keep paleontologists up at night. In public radio, we value our relationship with each and every one of our listeners. You listen to us, and we listen to you too. So keep our connection strong. Donate to this station right now. Here's how. You know who covers dinosaurs really well? The Nature of Idaho on KISU. Support NPR and KISU programs by visiting KISU.org and click donate. Hey, welcome back from the break. I want to welcome our guest today, Candace Ballin. She's a senior conservation biologist with the Xerxes Society. Thank you for joining us today on The Nature of Idaho. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, it's great to have you here. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Yeah, so like you said, I'm a conservation biologist. I'm based in Portland, Oregon, and I work in our endangered species program at Xerxes. And um, I get to work with a lot of very cool animals, um, but I lead our firefly conservation program. Um, so I get to work with fireflies across the country and Canada. Um, and then I also manage our Western butterfly program and then get to kind of dabble in other species groups, like a lot of aquatic invertebrates and snails and slugs and just really working on imperiled and at-risk species and trying to figure out ways um, to conserve them. I'm curious, just on a, on, on the day-to-day -day in your position, are you in the field trying to gather information specifically about insects or are you out in the public trying to communicate with them or are you doing research in a lab? What, what's a what's a typical day look like? Uh, well, it's kind of all of the above, okay. minus the lab usually. <laughs> um, this time of year, I'm in the field a lot, so doing a lot of surveys to look for species, um, map out their distributions, figure out what kind of habitats they're using. But then, yeah, also a lot of office work, especially in the winter, um, just um, processing and analyzing data and writing reports. And then we do a lot of work with land managers to basically provide technical guidance for different ways that they could manage their lands for these species and their habitats. Um, and then we also do a lot of outreach and education. So right before I started talking with you two, I was actually hosting a workshop on North American Firefly ID um, with Dr. Oliver Keller. Um, so it's a lot of different things. We have community science programs. We um, do research with university labs and professors. It's kind of all over the place. I think that's great because that is a perfect example of what we need to do to develop successful conservation programs. It's yes. just not one aspect. It's all these responsibilities and ideas and approaches need to be combined into one kind of plan. Yeah, it's worked pretty well for us. Um, there's a, sometimes a bit of a tightrope to walk between them all, but it's been effective. It's wonderful. So we're talking about the firefly or lightning bug. Uh, can you tell us in general, what are they? <laughs> 
Yes, so fireflies are beetles. They have a bit of a misnomer of a name. They're not <laughs> flies or they're also called glowers or lightning bugs. Um, and depending on where you are in the country, like I grew up in the Southeast and we grew up calling them lightning bugs. Um, but in many other parts of the country, they're often referred to as fireflies. And so the term firefly is kind of used for any insect that's in the Lampyridae family, which is the firefly family. Um, and so that can include kind of your typical flashing species that you think of as lightning bugs and that most people think of as fireflies. But we also have day active fireflies that don't light up. And then we have um, actual glowworms, which glow and they don't flash. So if I touch a lightning bug, will I get a shock? <laughs> Maybe. <sighs> You'll have to let me know if you do. That okay. Be very you know, that's what my dad told me years ago. So I never touched one. <laughs> <laughs> so make sure make sure your fingers are dry. Dry, okay. Yeah, that's okay. It. And I'm hanging yeah. onto your hand that's right. when I you do You gotta that. be grounded. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> so you're just working with that synthetic stuff, right? Right, right. <laughs> Stay safe. We had rubber gloves on. Come on. So this is this is a uh, within that group, the Lampyridae, there are a whole diversity of beetles that, that fit into this category, right? Daytimes mm -hmm. and evening ones and that sort of thing. So are there common ways in which they live uh, or, or fit into their ecosystem in terms of what they do, how they feed and that sort of thing? Yeah. So the, um, the larvae of fireflies are um, predatory. And so they play a really big role in the ecosystems that they're found in. Just as predators, um, the larvae can live up to two years or longer. So that part of their life is really long uh, for an insect because, you know, a lot of the adults may live only like a few weeks. And so they basically spend all evening creeping around, looking for food, eating food, and they primarily eat soft-bodied invertebrates like snails and slugs and worms. That's pretty standard across fireflies around the world. So where would we find fireflies? What kind of habitats do they like to uh, hang out in? Yeah, so they can be found in quite a variety of habitats, anything from, you know, your, your front yard to local parks, you can find them in the forest, um, even in like desert riparian areas. Um, the biggest thing that fireflies all need is moisture of some kind. And so whether that is a permanent stream in Arizona or even an irrigated lawn in like Ohio, they need some form of moisture. Okay, so we think of fireflies, especially the kinds that light up, right? Tell us a little bit, just in a basic sense, how the lighting up part works. <laughs> I am probably not the best person to explain this, but it is a chemical reaction in their body um, using an enzyme. Um, and it basically, yeah, it produces light. It's a light that basically produces no heat. And so it's caught the interest of a lot of other researchers and scientists who, who study bioluminescence and use it for, for medicine and um, all sorts of other things. So what you're saying is fireflies are magical. They are extremely magical. Right. <laughs> what, what's the benefit for lighting up and flashing like that? So all of the juvenile stages that we know of um, produce light. They will light up from eggs to the pupae and larvae as well. And so that is probably being used as a deterrent from predators, um, basically warning them off. 
Um, for adults, it seems um, there's been speculation that that has basically been kind of like co-opted by some adult fireflies uh, to be used for courtship. And so the light that you see is actually like males and females communicating with each other. Um, and each species has its own um, kind of like flash pattern and use of this light to attract mates and to communicate with them. Now, I think I, I read this right before. Fireflies are toxic, right? And so when you say mm -hmm. they're, they're, the flashing is kind of like a warning signal, they are, they do exhibit a, a measure of toxicity. Yeah. And there's actually a really interesting genus of firefly called Faturus, which is the largest genus in the U.S. And there are a number of adult females in that genus that have been um, recorded to their predatory and so they will actually feed on other fireflies because they don't have those toxins um, that many other firefly species do. And so the, the females will mimic the adult males, the flash patterns, and kind of entice them into them, um, <laughs> thinking that they're a female of their own species. And then the female will eat that male firefly and basically, um, you know, like ingest the toxin. And then she's able to pass it on to her offspring as this protective measure which is that is awesome. Pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Insects are great. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about fireflies of the West, or the, say the Western half of the U S Peter and I have, we live here in Southeast Idaho and I guess neither of us have really recognized that there are fireflies in our midst is, is that is that because we're just not seeing them or the definition of firefly of the group is is larger than what we are expecting to see as you know glowing insects flying up in the you know in the in the twilight hours yeah it's probably a bit of both i know i live in oregon and i get this question all the time people being like wait we actually have fireflies <laughs> out west and yeah i mean fire so like i was saying there are three kind of types of fireflies in the u.s and when you head east of the Rockies and like through the Great Plains out into the Eastern seaboard, that's where you find the majority of flashing firefly species. West of the Rockies, most of our fireflies tend to be the day active ones and the adults don't light up or they're glowworms, which are, they give off very faint light and it's difficult to see them. It's not like the flashing that you see with, with our lightning bugs. Um, but that said, there are isolated populations of multiple flashing species throughout the West. Um, they seem to be really heavily tied to permanent water sources. Um, I think because it's so arid in so much of the West that, you know, whereas in the East, you might find them, like I was saying, in like places with irrigation or even just places, there's so much more humidity there that I think fireflies can persist in a lot more places. Um, but yeah, we have fireflies in the West. We have flashing fireflies in the West. Um, and more and more populations are being reported each year. I think as people learn about it and get excited and go out, um, we have uh, like documentation or published literature about flashing fireflies occurring in most Western states and even up into Canada. Um, so now there's a few of us working to try to document those populations. For me, if I was going to look for fireflies, finding the flashing ones would be relatively easy because when you see them light up, you're like, ha ah, ha, firefly. 
how do how do you go about looking for the the day active fireflies that don't really have <laughs> any telltale signal that they are a firefly? Yeah. <laughs> I have found that those are extremely difficult to go just looking for. <laughs> we started this project called the Firefly Atlas, and we were, um, my coworkers and partners and I, and we are testing out the protocols last year. And yeah, it's much easier to go out after dark and look for flashes. And you're like, okay, those are fireflies. But for the day active ones, they don't seem to really congregate as much um, for the most part. And so, the only ones I've seen, it's usually like a single individual here and there, and it's pretty random when I come across them. They're just kind of sitting on vegetation in the middle of the day. Um, I haven't quite figured out a good way to to search for them. You know, people will go sweep netting mm-hmm. the vegetation to try to find them. Um, but yeah, it, it's a very different scene than looking for flashing species. So will the to kind of cohabitate. So if you find an area with flashing fireflies, can do you can you expect to have some of the daylight, the day active yeah, fireflies? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Um that's not always the case, but certainly in some places. Yeah, the the day active ones are very widespread across the west and so we have them in a lot of places that you wouldn't necessarily have flashing species. What do we know about population structure of fireflies in the West? And is is that something that has been changing over historic times? We don't have very good baseline data or historic data. Um, we, we actually don't really have population data for any of our firefly populations in the U.S. And so we're working on kind of developing some monitoring protocols to put into place to, to start getting that information. But... I mean, across the West, at least for the flashing species, it seems to be pretty patchy. And, you know, I do a lot of work in Arizona and the Southwest, and we have kind of speculated that, you know, maybe they used to be a lot more widespread across all of these areas, you know, in intact riparian areas. But because, I mean, so many of the water corridors have basically been interrupted or um, with different water drawdowns, they're just, they're dry. And so the fireflies aren't there anymore. And these little populations that we are finding, maybe they were much more continuous in the past, but yeah, we just don't have information on that. You're, you're working as a, an endangered species conservation biologist. Are, are any of these groups, have, have they been identified as being sort of under threat at that level? Yeah, so we actually just, um, Xerces and and one of our partners as well, submitted a few Endangered Species Act petitions for some species that we're really concerned about, especially um, there was one in particular in the West in in Southern Arizona. um, And that was primarily because of some of the threats I mentioned, just these water drawdowns and climate change and all the droughts that have been happening in the West it's led to a lot of concern about the persistence of the species. You know, as, as you try to get them listed and find, you know, ways, whether it's on the local, state, or federal level for protection, you kind of have to sit there and go, these guys, these fireflies are important because. So what role does the firefly f- play in our ecosystem? I mean, the role as um, predators in local food webs is a pretty big one. Um, I would also say that, you know, fireflies are a really good indicator of ecosystem health. And I know we have a lot of those indicators, but if you see fireflies somewhere, then you know that, you know, there's some sort of probably intact 
aquatic habitat that's probably of good of good quality. Um, it's probably an area that isn't as impacted by light pollution, especially if it's a species that's active, you know, fully after darkness. Um, so it can tell you a lot about the local area and the habitats there, which, you know, can translate to a lot of other species as well. I mean, they're a part of our like local biodiversity and it's just, yeah, they're an amazing piece of our, our natural history and the ecology of the areas that we live and work and play. And You're right. And I, the other part too, I think when we look at bio indicators, you see fireflies, um, that's one component you know if you then if you come across and you see a couple different species of dragonflies as well and you've got all these others that start adding up to it mm -hmm. it's also a measure of ecosystem health just because you see one indicator doesn't necessarily mean that it's a thriving ecosystem and so right. yeah so these are really good markers and guides for our overall ecosystem health i want to ask how can folks contribute how can they be helpful in not only for protect these species, but I guess more broadly, the environments that these animals live in? Yeah. So um, like I mentioned, uh, light pollution is a really big threat to a lot of firefly species that light up because it can kind of drown out their signals to each other and have other impacts to adults and other life stages. And so kind of the nice thing about light pollution is that it's really easy to stop it. You just turn off lights, you right. lower lights. Um, so that can have a huge impact just having folks, yeah, turn off outdoor lights at night or put things on timers uh, or motion sensors so that the light is on when you need it, but not at all times. And then also just from a habitat perspective, if you, if you manage lands where fireflies occur, or if you have a yard, um, just like fireflies, like most wildlife, prefer things to be a little bit more messy and wild. And so try to refrain from, you know, cleaning things up too much or um, having too much ground impact. Because like I was saying, you know, the larvae are around for up to two years. They live a long time. Um, the glowworm species have lightless females. And so they're also really low on the ground. So if you're mowing or trampling areas with something like that can just crush these species that can't easily fly away and fireflies depending on the species that they are they they use vegetation of different heights for perching and shelter for um you know flashing communications they might have preferences and so kind of providing these really diversely structured habitats for them where they and have all these different things that they need is really important. Um, plus, you know, having more plants helps to hold in moisture, which is really important for fireflies. And it's also really important for the things they eat too, right? Like that kind of habitat brings in more snails and slugs and worms. And just things with like microhabitats too, like thinking about um, like leaf litter and leaving rotting logs, um, things like that can help as well. I'm trying to imagine the larvae. So I think I can, I can picture a, uh, an adult beetle, because mm -hmm. those are the ones that attract my attention. You've talked now about the, the larvae being around for a couple of years and that they're predators and that they're eating snails and slugs and worms. And mm -hmm. so I'm thinking there, this might be a ferocious looking larva. <laughs> I, yes. I keep going back to dragonfly nymphs. Those things those are, are terrifying. Yeah. Those are, yeah. 
Yeah, the larvae are, I highly recommend anyone <laughs> should go look up a photo of them because they're kind of, you know, they're they're somewhat grub-like, but they're like armored grubs and okay. they're, they're creeping around hunting for things and they have these little faces. Some of them are really narrow faces so that they can get into snail shells. You know, it's like, hello, I'm here for breakfast, which must be terrifying. How, um, about how large are they? Um, they, I mean, they vary by species, sure. but some of them can be uh, fairly large, you know, up to, I don't know, an inch or more. Oh, geez. Okay, Peter. Peter's pulling some of these up on his phone. Oh boy, yeah. Those, <laughs> that could make a good. Uh, I don't know, a, a new alien monster or something. Wow. Someone, someone referred to them as I can't remember what movie. It was some like alien movie, and they're like they look like the war, like the space warships coming in. <laughs> wow. You know, now that I'm looking at this picture, these pictures, I saw these all over You've the place them. as a kid. You know? Really? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. We grew up on a farm, and we had a creek and a little marsh wetland area as well. So we had them all over the place, and now I'm going, yeah, they, we, we saw them everywhere. Sure. So, yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so those will light up. Like, if you're out at night and you're in a place where they are, like, they have a pretty sustained glow, and you should be able to see them. So does Leaf's around. personality. Oh, aren't you yeah. sweet? <laughs> <laughs> Sustained. Sustained glow. Yeah. yeah. But I, I do feel like, too, at least in, I mean, I know you're in Idaho, and I think there's only one flashing species that we know of in Idaho, but there's just still so much we don't know about flashing species in the West. And I think heading out and looking for these, and if you notice larvae, like going back out there at night and seeing if they're, if they're active during the summer would be pretty cool. Yeah, I grew up out east. Peter was in the Midwest, mm -hmm. and 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 seeing them come up and and just taking it, I guess, for granted. That's just yeah. part of life out there. That you know, in the <laughs> evening, in the summer, uh, at a certain time of evening, right? They they just start kind mm -hmm. of glowing and rising at different levels, and it is is always um, magical when I see it now. Grown up, when I go back to those places, but I really did take it for granted when I was younger. It's like, oh, that happens everywhere. But it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't. Yeah, it's not. Mm -mm. It's not something that we have around. No, here. not one bit. And yeah, yeah. I, I again, I think of the same thing. With my, when the girls were younger, we were in Atlanta, and so you didn't really big city, and you talk about not necessarily great for fireflies. And we were back home in Iowa one week, and um, it was at dusk, and the girls were just shocked, and they're like, "What's that over there?" And there were <laughs> thousands of fireflies coming out. <laughs> And you know that was the first time they saw something like that, and it it is impressive and beautiful and amazing. It's truly incredible. Uh, we started the show with a trivia question that I'd love the answer to: How many species of firefly are in the United States? So right now we have, I think it's 172 species that have been described. That is, um, but more more species are being described every year, so that's probably going to change. <laughs> right. That that's a staggering number to me. That right. 172 species. Yeah. Like wow, <laughs> that is so diverse. Not even close to. I would have thought a couple dozen. Okay, maybe a couple dozen. Right. Wow, that's a really rich group. That's yeah. Uh, Honestly, yeah. I was even surprised when I learned how many there were. <laughs> it, I mean, it's good to be surprised. Yeah. Well, the older I get, I you know, it's great. Every day you get surprised. <laughs> and 172 <laughs> species is an insane number. I, I, I'm, I'm like all of it. You're just like, what? Really? <laughs> so, 
All right. Well, Candice, we really want to thank you for joining us today. And it was a fun talk. And I really hope that we all out west here get to see more and more fireflies. It's They really are a truly wonderful little beetle and um, beware of the the nymphs the, 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 <laughs> the larvae they are they are they are if you're tough. a snail if you're a snail yeah, right. <laughs> stay clear of the firefly larvae and for everyone listening please um, go to xerces.org or fireflyatlas.org to learn more about our wonderful western fireflies the Nature of Idaho receives support from listener contributions to KISU-FM. Shows are produced at Idaho State University with editing and production by Jamin Anderson and Diana Perez. Music is by Idaho's very own Sons of Bannock. Audio of this and all past episodes of The Nature of Idaho can be found at KISU.org from Spotify and other select podcast services. Send your thoughts and suggestions to noidkisu at isu.edu.